perspective uh, people. It's a brilliant book if you've not read it. It's not a particularly a Christian book, but I'd say they're all kingdom principles. It's a fantastic book. I read it a few years ago. It's a book that talks about leadership and ways of living, seven habits of highly effective um, people. But he wrote this. He talks in one of his chapters about paradigm shifts. And he says this, a paradigm is the mental map that determines how a person perceives, understands, and interprets the outside world. Okay, I'll say that again. A paradigm is the mental map that determines how a person perceives, understands, and interprets the outside world. They're our individual maps of reality that we have in our minds, in our hearts as well, I'd say, a series of ingrained assumptions of the way things are. So it's kind of when people say, well, that's just the way things are. And tonight, in that context, I want to be talking about the church. Because I believe there's a cultural shift at work, not instigated by humanity or by lots of church leaders getting together and thinking, oh, we could do something like this. I think it's one not instigated by human ideas, will or design, but I would say by the Spirit of God. God is at work in the world and has been for quite a long time, but is at work amongst his bride, shaking the church in the West, making us reevaluate what church is all about. St. Matt's is part of that. And we're trying to push into what we sense God. We've been talking about apostolic community. We'll, we'll talk a bit about, about that. But it's not just St. Matt's. It's not just something in Bath. I'm hearing this echo right across, actually across the world, particularly the Western church and the, probably the church in America as well would, would include that. And the reason being, I think it really needs it. God is shaking the church because he has plans. So this is not about reinvention of a model of church. It's more about reimagining God's dream of what church is supposed to be. It's not a good idea, simply, but I think it's perhaps God's idea in these days. So we're going to look at this passage, which I'm sure are familiar, and Debbie's going to read. It's chapter, chapter 10, starting at verse 1, and we'll read a whole chunk of it so you get the context of the whole story. Thanks, Debbie. So the reading is from Acts 10, uh, verses 1 to 33, and then verses 44 to 48. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and, devout so and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and were approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. 
he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told, told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then to verse 44. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished and that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Amen. This perhaps is a, a really familiar story. Just a bit of context. Caesarea was a seaport built by Herod the Great and named after Caesar Augustus. Um, and after 6 AD, it became a kind of Roman... There was a Roman prefect who was put in charge of that whole area uh, and, and actually ruling over the whole of Judea, over a whole big geographic area. And Caesarea became the seat of the Roman government in this area. So that was a big deal. There was a really strong Roman military presence there. And so the whole of the Jewish culture around there would have been saturated by the soldiers, the military presence. As they came, they took over an area and they influenced it. Roman culture extended laws. The whole civic thing was kind of became Roman culture. And so in this city lives Cornelius, centurion of the Roman occupying army, um, from the Italian cohorts, interesting, um, which apparently probably was an artillery, uh, a, a, an archery unit. Uh, and so here he is, this professional soldier, part of this big military machine, um, commander of a group of how many people, centurion? Very good, Matt. Didn't fall for the trick. Apparently 80. Who knew that? Well, now you do. Um, and Matt, he knew it. Yeah, so centurion in charge of about 80 people, uh, 80 soldiers. Um, but we're told that this, this is a man who fears God. He's got a devout faith. By implication, he's been influenced by the Jewish culture. We know nothing really about his background, why that is. But there's something about him that's drawn to God. He's... Um, a lover of God in one sense and a worshipper. He's very generous. He's known throughout the community as a a fair-minded, generous man. He gives um, probably almost certainly to the temple um, and prays constantly, we're told. Described later on Acts 22 as an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. He, in a sense, is kind of one of these group of um, Gentiles who would be called God-fearers. These are Gentiles, non-Jews, who were associated to the synagogue probably. They probably even participate in Jewish worship, prayers, certainly financially would have supported the synagogue. They would have given away money. They knew that it was their duty to to, to the equivalent of tithing, to give out of their generosity. Um, but in order to become fully, um, fully-fledged proselytes of Judaism, ever, however, they would have had to follow all the commandments of Moses which would have kind of been following the whole letter of the law to kind of become a Jew, um, which for the guys would have included circumcision. Uh, And it seems at this time there were very few Gentiles who thought that was a good idea. Um, So they were kind of nearly there, but not, they drew a line, literally, um, and, and weren't quite willing to go that whole way. And probably the truth is the church didn't necessarily want them. Certainly from the Romans that would have been a real, uh, a real issue. Cornelius, as I say, would have lived in that whole area. People knew him, and there was something of faith in him that drew him to, towards God. But you have to remember, culturally, the church at this time, and we kind of miss this, don't we? The, the, the church was Jewish. They were all good Jewish boys and girls. They'd grown up in Jewish culture. Jesus was a Jew, that might come as a shock to some of you, but we sometimes forget that. We, we project our Western idea onto the church, but these are all Jewish. All they'd known is Jewish law, the Torah. They were well-versed in Jewish scriptures. Their whole culture had been Jewish. And then they had found, in a sense, they were 
Jews who had become disciples of Jesus and were following Jesus as his disciples. So even mixing with Gentiles would have made them unclean, particularly in the context of food. You didn't invite a Gentile into your house. You certainly didn't eat with a Gentile. It would have been a real problem. And so this man, Cornelius, should never have been part of the church. It was never even anyone's mind that these non-Jews could truly become part of this new church. Culturally for them as Jews... It wasn't even in their head. And knowing all that makes it even more remarkable then what happens in this whole passage between Peter and Cornelius. We heard the story there. One afternoon while praying, Cornelius gets this vision, tells him to go and find Peter. And Peter, we're told, I love the little details. I was just praying this earlier on with the team beforehand. Do you notice it said that he was hungry and he was up on the roof? And I was saying that when I'm hungry, I often get really grumpy. And, and, and you can imagine this slightly grumpy, even in a trance, with God. What are you showing me that for, God? I can't eat that. I know when I'm grumpy, I'm not my most clear thinking. And sometimes in my grumpiness, in our grumpiness, God brings to surface some of those things that he really, really wants to challenge. Actually, are always there, but a bit buried deep down. And Peter's hungry. And then he gets this vision of food, food that he can't eat. And God says, no, I want you to eat. And he's really confused, and this happens three times, and he has this argument with God, saying, I can't do that, that's not allowed, it's unclean. He's outraged, he's shocked, he's offended by what God seems to be saying to him. He can't comprehend it, he can't receive it. It's far beyond his worldview, his experience of his religious upbringing and his culture that he's so been part of. It's beyond even his imagination. And we need to recognise the power of culture, Not just culture out there, but culture in here. Not just in St. Matt's, but culture in our church. Because there's good culture and there's bad culture. And we need to recognise the power of culture to shape our thinking that actually shapes our theology. And if we're honest, a lot of church theology is not necessarily shaped by theology, but it's actually shaped by our practice or what we grew up in or how we did church, or how our parents did church, or how we've read about church. And and that becomes so part of our ecclesiology, the way we do church, that we just assume that that's how it should be done, because that's how it's always been done. And even for us who are part of a modern, modern church, it's just as easy to become institutionalised and culturally shaped by that. Some of you here, thinking of my kids and some of you students, all you will have known is worship like this with a band. You won't have grown grown up with kind of organs and liturgy. All you have known is this as your church worship culture. And all of that shapes us for good and for bad. When maybe God shakes us and says, I want you to reimagine what church might be. So Peter's trying to puzzle and make sense of this whole, what do you mean? That's unclean, God, I can't do that. Trying to make sense of this. When Cornelius... um, the message arrives, the men sent by Cornelius arrive and very bravely ask for Peter. And they tell him about Cornelius' vision. And in that moment he has an option, doesn't he? To, first of all, he invites these people into his house, these Gentiles. He listens to them. I imagine he's shocked, he's perplexed, he's confused. Maybe he's even a bit scared. He senses the God's on the case, but he doesn't understand quite why or what. Ever felt like that? When you feel that God's begun to speak to you? and you really wish he would show you the whole picture. But probably the truth is it's quite a good job that he doesn't, because otherwise you'd run the opposite direction. 
but you sense that God is urging you or challenging you or speaking to you and you get a kind of a bit of a glimpse of it and you know your heartbeat goes up a bit and you sense God calling you. Maybe it's in work or maybe it's in mission or maybe it's in relationship or in church and you just sense that skip of God's spirit in your heart. And Peter goes with that. He doesn't run from it, but I imagine he's perplexed. He offers hospitality in a Jewish home. That would have been a scandal in many ways. But he knows that God is doing something and he can't stand against that. It says in that first meeting, you know that it's unlawful for a Jew to visit a Gentile. But Peter goes. And there's this paradigm shift that happens for Peter. Peter's, there's a moment of inspiration, an epiphany moment, if you like, in a sense. But actually, don't forget, for Peter, if he'd had eyes to see it, and for all of the Jews, if they'd had eyes to see it, this actually wasn't something really new. There was all the disregarded evidence through Scripture in the Jewish Bible about God's people being a light to the Gentiles, not being in a box that's hidden for the, for the Jews, but a light to the Gentiles, a light for the whole of human race. And Jesus' remarks hinted about global mission, but they'd kind of slightly disregarded that. And the church for them had just been Jewish converts. At best, they'd misunderstood what the scripture said and what Jesus said. And maybe at worst, they'd just chosen to disregard it because they couldn't imagine this message of hope from Jesus going out beyond the Jewish people. They were interested in Israel being restored. They were interested in the Messiah coming to Israel and the light shining for them and and the Romans ultimately being perhaps kicked out and Israel being restored. They kind of didn't want to be occupied with mission to the rest of the world, perhaps. That didn't fit in with what Peter had grown up in, Peter's Jewish paradigm of this new church that Christ had started. So they're put on one side. But in this moment where Peter goes to this house and the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles and they all start speaking in tongues, being filled with the Holy Spirit, as he looks at all this gobsmacked, he's like, wow, God is doing this amongst these people. I better not say that it's not of God. In a moment, with God's help and with God's leading and with God's evidence, that paradigm dissolves in that moment. I love the verses that are used in some of the translations. It says, the circumcised believers, so the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. We find ourselves often in those moments where we're almost offended when God does stuff that we think he shouldn't. Or God challenges our way of thinking so much so that we kind of recoil against that and go, really? We're astounded. Even then? Astounded at what God's doing. It's an amazing thing. God, I believe... um, wants to challenge us continually. Are we willing to be challenged about our way of thinking? To open our hearts to the infinite possibilities of God's grace beyond our own circumstances or imagination. It's difficult to imagine perhaps doing church differently. Differently than what we've already experienced, particularly if you enjoy church. Maybe if church is a bit of a nightmare for you, you're constantly imagining doing church differently. Maybe that's you here tonight. Well, that's fine. But sometimes our wanting it differently is from reasons that I'm going to explain in a moment. It's, it's because I want it different for me. Maybe God is causing a generation to say, maybe church is supposed to be different, 
Not for me, but for the world. Because if we're really honest, the bride which I read about in Scripture, which is glorious and magnificent, and at its best is radiant and spectacular, in this nation, in this city, if we're honest, hasn't been massively spectacular at seeing people rush in saying, I see your Messiah, I need him too. But I think they're supposed to. It was really interesting. I was reflecting with some church leaders a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember that night I spoke on the bride? It was about three or four weeks ago. It was just before most of our students went back. And I was talking, I just started talking about the bride. I get quite passionate talking about the bride. I was talking about the church and how it's supposed to be. And I was apologizing for how often we as leaders have made the church and how the church hasn't always been a place of holiness and a place of truth and a place of light and welcome and family and community and a beautiful, radiant bride, the bride that it's supposed to be. And we haven't shown Jesus. We haven't allowed him to be seen. And, you know, when he said, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And we have to be honest and say, you know, often we haven't loved one another. We've despised one another. And we've argued with one another. And we've stabbed one another. And we've shouted and cursed at one another. God's so gracious, he hasn't abandoned us. But often the church has been a pretty miserable representation of Christ on earth. But that night I spoke and went off on one, as I do sometimes, about how the bride is supposed to be and how Jesus loves the bride and how we're called to be passionate and running after the bridegroom and fulfilling his mission and purpose on earth. And at the end of that night, uh, someone came out and said, will you come and talk to these two students? They want to become Christians. And you think, oh, I didn't do a gospel presentation tonight. I didn't talk about Jesus and the need for the cross. And What had they caught a glimpse of? They'd heard something of the Spirit saying, this is my beautiful bride. And this is what the whole world is called to be in relationship, running after the bridegroom, caught up with this beautiful family of God. And they said, I want to be a part of that. That's what I want. That's what I want my life to be full of. And we talked to them and we prayed together. It was beautiful. They happened to be in the room that night. We talked about it. Maybe God is wanting us to reimagine what the church is supposed to be in these days. Father, forgive us sometimes for what we've made it. The mission of Christ is the same that it's always been. It's to the world. We're called to be sent ones, apostolic, the sent ones. The early church seemed to get that. They were sent and they went. No matter what your class is, your race, no matter what your sex, your religious background, no matter what country you come from, no matter about your past, your failures, your struggles, you know, no ma- in these days, no ma- maybe no matter what your sexual orientation is, God in these days is calling us. He may want to challenge us and transform us, but he's calling and reaching out to the world. And he speaks with love and says there's a call for everyone. No one's excluded if you come to me and come under my grace and come under my trans- transformational power. No matter what, God loves. And he wants us to encounter that love and be transformed by that love and sent out into the world. So as we look at church, maybe in these days we feel a bit like Peter up on the roof. We're sensing change, but we're struggling how to make sense of it and what it might mean. I mentioned Stephen Covey earlier on. Let me read that again from his book, Seven Habits. A paradigm is the mental map that determines how a person perceives, understands, and interprets the outside world. There are individual maps of reality that we have in our minds, a series of ingrained assumptions of the way things are. In, in his book, he te- I was going to read it to you, he tells this, this challenging story of a paradigm shift that he experienced. I'll read what he says. 
I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were reading their newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then suddenly a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing other people's things. It was very disturbing, and still the man did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I couldn't believe that he could be so insensitive to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and spoke. Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Can you imagine what I felt in that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. My heart was filled with the man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died. I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. Many people experience a similar fundamental shift in thinking when they face a real life-threatening crisis and suddenly see their priorities in a different light. Or when they suddenly step into a new role. I think for too long, we've often just done church because we've done church. Some of us here were brought up in church. It's maybe a culture that many of us have known one flavour or another. Or we do church because we feel we should do church. Or because someone tells us that we should do church. And God's really gracious because he loves us. And it's good to be together. But maybe God is calling us to a much higher reason not to do church, but to be church. That when it captures our hearts, suddenly our whole landscape changes and our vision changes. And we see something in front of us, a goal to run for, that makes being church suddenly take on a whole new realm of importance. He says at the end of that chapter, it becomes obvious that if we want to make relatively minor changes in our lives, we can focus our attitudes and behaviours. But if we want to make significant quantum change, we need to work on our basic paradigms. God, I believe in these days, is challenging and urging his bride to embrace quantum change in the nature of what it means to be church. Not to do church, but to be church. I've got some good friends, um, beautiful friends, Christian friends, uh, and they have a fabulous young son. He's an amazing believer, prophetic young man, and a, a remarkable man who's a real credit to them. He's just joined the Marines. It's a big deal. He's training at the moment, and uh, it's tough even to get in, and he's got in, and he's tra tra training, and, and doing well. 
I also have had the privilege of having some really, really good friends who were members of a wonderful health spa not far away from Bath. Uh, very generous, lovely couple. And they often kindly allowed Sarah and myself to get a pass to go there for a day and to enjoy the, the spa and the, the swimming pool and the beautiful smelly rooms that you go in that cook you and all those sort of beautiful facilities where you lie back and you feel like you're kind of a multi-millionaire just being there. It's amazing. And we had some amazing quality time there. But I want you to consider the radical differences between joining the Marines and joining a health spa. Today, I would suggest that the church in the West structurally has more of the makeup of a spa, set up to draw people via programs, publicity, and promises of good personal attention. It's going to be a nice place to be. And those things in and of themselves aren't wrong. But they're often our primary focus. And will often determine which church we join if they tick all our boxes. The coming church, the church I believe in these last days, will, I think, function much more like the military. Set up to draw people in, compelled by the magnitude and importance of the mission. People join a health spa to be nurtured and enjoy life with themselves in mind. People join the military to serve, even to death, with others, the bigger picture, in mind. Their reason for living, for being, is not to, to be served, but to serve. And I think in many ways we've got to recognise that and we've got to own that. And I as a leader, I've been, I've been in church leadership since 1994. I was five years old at the time, that's not true. Um, <laughs> it's actually quite depressing when I think how old I am. Since 1994, in one flavour or another I've been in church, obviously in Anglican church much later. And in all the flavours of church I've been in, often... The model and structure of the Western church ministry that I've been part of and I've helped shape and lead often resolves around the pastoral paradigm of ministry. What do I mean by that? You need to hear me carefully because I'm not knocking this per se, but I'm saying God is doing something new. It's interesting that the, the word pastor translated in the way pastor that we've just um, heard is only actually mentioned once in the entire New Testament in that way of pastor as we understand it. And in fact, if you look at all those early churches that were set up as we've been reading through Acts and as we'll go back into Acts in in September, none of them really were started by pastors. They were started by apostles. And what ran through the whole church culture was an apostolic sending culture of, wow, this is amazing, we want to send. Not as missionaries to the end of the earth, although some did, but send into their cultures, whether they were slaves, free, whether they were Roman centurions or whether they were businessmen, sent as the people of God, sent ones, apostolic gifts from the church to the world. And in some ways, it could be argued that we've created a structure of church services that are simply designed to bless, nurture and comfort attendees. And hear me right, 
those things are fine and important and the church is supposed to be, for some people in a season, a real place of refuge, a hospital. I know for many here this has been a real place of healing and comfort and encouragement. And because often churches have been set up by pastors, that is often the key grace that is on the church. It's a place of blessing and nurture and protection and leading people to still waters and that's good. There's nothing wrong with being a pastor and there's nothing wrong with having pastoral support in a church. We, we, we take that really seriously here. That's why we have Peter and Victoria and others on the team as real pastors to hold and nurture and build. But I think what we're talking about in these days is that God is shaping church leadership and mission into an apostolic model of ministry that enables us to be more effective in advancing God's kingdom into the communities in which we love. We want to draw people in so they can be healed, so they can be nurtured, so they can be encouraged, but we want to heal them so they can go back out and take the good news of the kingdom. To be sent ones. We started by talking about a Roman centurion. It's really interesting when you look at Rome. Some of you will have heard this before, but when you... When you look at Rome, have you ever thought, why did the Romans go and conquer the world, the known world? Why did they invade up through Germania and all of those places? You'll have seen Gladiator, all of that. Why did they do that? It was, it was madness. I'm reading a book at the moment about the invasion of Britain with the Romans. It was completely bonkers. Going to this place where everyone was painted in blue paint and they're all kind of nutcases as they were in Britain at that time. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. The hordes. Why did they come to England? Why did they sweep across Europe? Why did they go down into Africa? Why did they go through into Spain, into, right the way down into Spain? Why were they doing that? They had a mission, the Romans. It was to invade, occupy, and transform. Really simple mission. That was their mission statement. Invade, occupy, transform. The Roman army did that because they wanted to make the territories that they invaded just like Rome for the emperor. So they would invade a new land that wasn't Roman and they would invade it with, port, with force and with people. And then they would occupy it, they would live in it and they would subsume the culture and they would get part of the civic culture and part of the education and they'd become part of that culture so much so that it would transform and it would become like part of Rome. And you would go there and it would look like Rome because the Romans had been there. They've invaded it, they'd occupied it, and then it had transformed. You know, in a sense, that is what God is calling the church to do, but not with the force of arms, but with the power of love and the power of God's spirit. God is longing for his church to invade culture, to invade our society. And boy, don't we need it in politics in education, in the arts, in the civic institutions around us, in the media. What would that look like if, if the Christian world went into those areas? Not with the power of arms, not with force, not, but to serve and to love and to minister and to occupy those places. Not to be afraid of them and so to run away from them, but to be part of them and to begin to bring transformation. So we are called in this apostolic age, the church, I believe, is called to be apostolic, the sent ones sent out into the world with heaven's DNA to bring transformation 
on earth as it is in heaven. I think in this age, God's grace is on his people within the church to be trained, equipped, healed, and then sent and released with the blessing of the church. Sent out into, some of you will have heard, there's various things on this, but seven mountains is, is quite a popular thing at the moment. As, God, as, the, uh, as the glory of God covers the earth and his presence is carried into every spiritual sphere of society, I think we can see society transformation. There's a whole load of teaching on the seven mountains. What are the seven mountains? Well, they're, they're kind of the cultural areas of our world. So the business world. Some of you here are businessmen in finance, in all sorts of different kind of business spheres, whether it's accounting or banking or uh, money or engineering or all sorts of different types, entrepreneurial creativity. Some of you here are real entrepreneurs. Business. But what about the government? That's another mountain. The government, the civic sphere, um, politics, politicians, both local and national politics. Then there's media. Man, does the media in this nation need the kingdom of God breaking through into it? Speaking truth, speaking positive stories of hope and transformation, honouring testimonies of goodness and blessing. Arts and media, arts and, arts and entertainment, so whether it's creative arts like painting or pottery or dance or music, God's king, God is the creator God. So those areas with God's spirit and Christians working, if we need to pray for the Christians in the world of arts, it's a tough world. Music world is tough. But in writing, beautiful, creative writing, poetry, painting, God wants to reclaim the arts. He's the creative God. And education, we've got lots of teachers here, both primary, secondary, and university. Adult education. Set up in this country, virtually all the schools in this country were set up by Christians. The Christian voice has often been silenced, but we need to be a Christian presence in education. That's the fifth one. Family. Another mountain, a kind of sphere of society. Family where there's parents, mums and dads, grandparents, brothers and sisters, being modelling what it means to model kingdom family life, family virtues, family goodness, family patterns. We as church, to be family, that's really important for us here, isn't it? And the last one, the area of church or religion, to have a voice that isn't silenced as church, to be church. So God, I think, is challenging us not to just sit back. I remember Roberto, some of you will remember, but Roberto, who I used to work with at Holy Trinity Down, he often used to talk in his Spanish, is the church supposed to be a cruise ship? He was from Pakistan, as you can tell. He's from Spain. Or is it supposed to be a battleship? He would say, a battleship with big guns. I was worried a little bit about that bit. But what he was saying was, you know, the church... It's not designed to be a cruise ship where we just simply pull out our deck chairs and enjoy the sun. We want to be on a battleship with the sun, the king of kings, sent on mission for his purpose. And I guess love is our greatest weapon. Love that overcomes fear, love that breaks through, love and the power of God's spirit in us to equip us. So I wonder what your dream is. I wonder what, which of those mountains you're called to. Some of you are called as missionaries to go abroad. Some of you are going to be going really soon. Some of you have got to know that there's that calling on you. But some of you are called into business. I know there's someone in this room. I'm not going to pick him out. But I, I believe there's someone in this room who's called 
to start business and to be an entrepreneur that is going to create business with, with kingdom principles that God is going to honour and you're going to generate income and God will use that. Remember that I said it when you become really rich. <laughs> but I don't say that lightly. I think God is doing that. For some of you, it's to have a voice into areas of injustice. Some of you, it's going to be church leadership, the church. Not necessarily the Anglican church. You might be church planting in all sorts of spheres. For some of you, you're going to be a remarkable mum or a remarkable dad that's going to leave people breathless by the way you parent. Because the kingdom of God will be anointing you for that. God's spirit will be with you. Some of you as teachers are going to influence a generation and you're going to believe in them like no one else does. Why? Because you know the Father believes in them. And you'll pray over the little chairs. No one will see it. But in 20 years' time, it will reap a reward that will transform cities because of the people you prayed for. And you'll probably never even know it. But the Father sees what you do and he knows it. Some of you dream of writing. And you're going to write. And you're going to think it's rubbish, but it will be beautiful to the Father. And who knows where that might go. Or paint or dance. Some of you here have got those gifts, but you've kind of put them to one side. God wants to breathe on you and say, no, 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 that's what it means to be part of my beautiful bride. Fly with those gifts. Enjoy that creativity, anointed by the Holy Spirit, as when the temple was created and, uh, and kind of the men and women of God were anointed and they made beautiful jewellery like Beth to bless and to heal and to transform. What's your dream? Maybe this is a season where you're up on a rooftop and you're thinking, no, I can't be that God. That doesn't fit with my, my pattern or my imagining of what I'm called to. But maybe God wants to shake you. Why don't you pray, Lord, would you show me the treasure that you want to uncover in my life so that I can fulfill your purpose for me to become part of your beautiful bride in these last days? when the world so needs to see the love of God, his kingdom power. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for churches that I've been part of where I've been pastored and loved and healed. But Lord, I don't want to sit around on deck chairs anymore, soaking up the sunlight, drinking pina coladas. Jesus, I, I know that we were all created for something greater than that called to arms not with weapons and uh, guns but with love and the power of your spirit Lord that's what I signed up for when I became a Christian for me to live is Christ to die is gain and one day we're going to be with you but while we have breath in our bodies may we be part of a bride part of a church that is dynamic and knows it has a purpose to reach out and to love the least, the last, and the lost, and to not be sauntering, but to be running with your wind behind us, to be apostolic, to know that we are sent by the Holy Spirit and with your power to reach out with your love, your transforming truth, your word, to reach out with the gospel in words and in actions. And into whatever spheres we're called, may we know that we do it with your blessing. And we do it together. 
as family. Family across the city. So Lord, we stand and honour Widcombe Baptist. We stand and honour together BCC and Freedom and All Saints Western and St Luke's and Holy Trinity and the Methodist Church in this city. Father, the FICE churches in this city. The Baptist churches, Hay Hill. Lord, we want to stand as a beautiful body in this city, together with one voice, to proclaim your kingdom in deed and action, in words that Jesus, you may be high and lifted up and glorified and that people may look and see you and be drawn to you and that together as your army, your people, we can proclaim your kingdom and see your kingdom as this city, as this nation is transformed as your people go forth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.